guilt and doubt, and then also uh, uh, con- you know of being loyal and and uh, performing your duty, being dependable. And then feeling uh, very guilty about when maybe you can't live up to those things, or, or feeling too attached to them. That, uh, that, you know, you know, you you know, 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 Sunday, and so the um, Sunday being the last day, and also you get quite sensitive in these retreats, you're probably aware. So tomorrow would be good to say at the mealtime to maybe uh, break the noble silence and uh, just to uh, get used to See, you see what happens when you start talking. And then tomorrow, after the meal, when it be one o'clock, go back to noble silence for the afternoon until tea time, and then talk some more. That will help to desensitize you. Because <laughs> when you go home on Sunday, it can be, if you have to drive or something, uh, you get quite refined and sensitive in this, in the sensory deprivation and meditation. Just to be aware of, of how, you know, as you, as you're concentrating the mind, and like like all of you, you know, and you, you know, coming seeing you from say, the day one. You can see people's faces beginning to relax, and you all look about ten years younger than you. <laughs> 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 I remember years ago in Switzerland, I, I gave two ten-day retreats consecutively uh, in this very beautiful place, and they, 
the first ten-day retreat, and then the second retreat followed. And there was this man from Berlin came on this retreat. I didn't know him, and he'd he'd been busy for quite a few years doing uh, like doing a PhD, and and he was just in a terrible state, mental state, and his face was all twisted and screwed up, and really, you know, this really ugly-looking man, and. Uh, it looked really unpleasant, and so uh, he was going on both for the whole twenty days, and uh, and so the first ten days he really suffered because he uh, he was uh, I mean he managed to but he he liked the food we had a very good cook and he said <laughs> the only thing that kept him on the retreat was that the food was so good so. They're also here, I think. This is, the food's been very good. Uh, so you see, the cooks have an important part to play in this, keeping <laughs> keeping them here. Then, then after on the on the second ten days, he 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 had some insight and in and his whole kind of twisted, contorted, and tense kind of appearance suddenly he dropped it. And he didn't look like the same man. He was quite a good-looking man, actually. <laughs> but never recognized as the same person. All the tensions in that, as it kind of, as they fell away. So, in integrating practice into daily life, is is your big challenge for you to to how to apply this in a situation where it's not you know so controlled or so uh, uh, spoon-fed where you don't have all the supporting conditions for mindfulness the on retreat of course it's all set up for they we, we do it deliberately to to help and to, to give you a taste of the meditation and a practice. Uh, then, but then the real important thing is to is to be able to apply what you've learned to your life, so that you don't just become a retreat addict. This going from one retreat, there are people that go from one retreat to the next, and this, uh, which is certainly a nice thing to do, but some people can't can't manage that, and so. Um, it's also important to learn how to to apply this into daily life. So that's why uh, to to uh, to get to know yourself, to really not in, in terms of a person, but to understand how your mind works and where where you tend to kind of lose it or get lost or carried away or uh, lost in your emotions. Not as a criticism, but just to know. So once you see where your weak points are, where your places that where you tend to go off, then you can you can uh, definitely uh, uh, say change the pattern. And if you don't know, then then and then you cause you you just uh, kind of a helpless victim of circumstances.
good to to uh, to take to to contemplate like the place you live in and the people you live with and the the uh, kind of work that you do and and learn how to uh, say develop mindfulness around those those situations it's like for example say in a, in uh, amravati here living here i've developed certain like from where i live to the uh, my room to the uh, to the sala to the big meeting hall over the years developed uh, this uh, meditation on just walking from there from the room to the to the meeting hall and just that because i do that every day many times a day walk from the my room to the office or my room to the meeting hall so that just that that path there i developed into a very to uh, where I've immediately kind of almost uh, it's natural for me to just be very mindful while going from from there to there because that's something I do many times a day and I could just in an easy be just do it in a habitual way of just you know running from the rushing from the room over to the meeting hall and back as a habit or to take that as a special practice. Last year I also had encouraged people to develop mindfulness around opening and closing doors because we have so many doors in this place. And where the monks live, they live on the other, they live in the same type of complex, but on the other side, there's these are kind of wooden buildings. Um, if you slam doors in and and walk heavily down the corridors you you're very disruptive and disturbing to people so uh, we're getting uh, using a situation for developing mindfulness so encouraging the bhikkhus to learn how to walk lightly rather than clumping down the corridor they trying to get them to be mindful of a step and thinking you know contemplating that in this particular type of building um, the different monks are in their rooms and and to walk in a way that you're not you know ca- you're causing the least amount of uh, disruption or or uh, can, uh, unpleasantness to them and and learning to to take a door and how to open it and then close it nicely so you don't slam it so these these ways you could take the, the uh, last year I kept repeating over and over this meditation on opening and closing doors. Well, it's just taking something quite ordinary that you see around you and and then designating that as a special practice. So it helps you too uh, to c- compose yourself because when you go in a door, to go, you open the door, you immediately, you, once you've made that determination, then the door itself kind of reminds you to compose yourself. Otherwise, we can go in and out of doors just totally heedlessly. You know, just we put all these kind of automatic closers on the doors to encourage my uh, heedlessness <laughs> here in the monastery. So people can just kind of open the door, go out, and it, it closes itself very nicely. But um, maybe we should take them off and 
everybody kind of like they do in Japan, where these, uh, at least in the old days, they used to, you know, they go to these uh, Japanese restaurants in, and then they, in very kind of traditional style restaurants where you, you go in and there's little rooms with these sliding screens. And then you're, you're sitting there and the, the uh, waitress comes in. She's in a kind of traditional kimono and she kneels, she's outside and she opens the, the screen door, slides it and then puts her tray in the room and then comes in and then kneels down and then closes the screen door nicely and picks up the tray and serves it in this very kind of lovely stylized way, very mindful. Not like a drive-in. <laughs> With bowing, also in in uh, Thailand, uh, Ajahn Chah used bowing as a as a way of developing mindfulness. So he uh, he encouraged us all to when we even when we go into our rooms, we were to like our little huts, and we as soon as we get in, we 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 bow three times, and then when we decide to leave, we bow three times, so that you using bowing as a way of composing yourself. So that this, this bowing isn't just a kind of thing you do uh, uh, heedlessly, but uh, is actually developing awareness around the movement of your body. And that you're, say, when you come in or leave, uh, we do it when we come in the shrine room or and leave. And in Thailand, we do it, we do it to the, in, the, in our little rooms, little huts, and I used to be very strict about bowing here, but then people started just bowing at everything. And, and one time, down at Chithurst, I, on a summer's day, some some people, some lay people, had come from Chichester, and they they were looking a bit bewildered, and they and they said, "Ajahn Sumato, uh, uh, we were out, we were having tea. We have in the summertime we have tea out on the lawn. You see, so." The Anagarikas that would bring the tea urn out onto the lawn, and uh, people would sit on mats out there and outside the house. And these men came. They said, "Ajahn Sumedho, uh, uh I'm very confused. Why, you know, I was out there and uh, I saw everybody bowing to the tea urn." <laughs> So you also want to to know when, when the you know to judge a situation, and, and uh, like uh, with mindfulness, you're bringing into the where, the where you are. You know, because bowing, any of these things can become perfunctory. You know, you, you just get, you feel ill at ease if you don't bow first. So you you go in and you can bow like that, and you can do whatever you want, but you're not really aware of. Of what you're doing, and you and you become compulsive about it. So this is finding a balance between this kind of 
flopping about and doing any old thing and or or you know or just becoming extremely kind of compulsive uh, about uh, things have to be done like this or you feel very you know ill at ease if you don't do this uh, and and you can be aware you can bring awareness to the to uh, the result of what you're doing the, with mindfulness it's not just learning to open and shut a door uh, nicely but to to be aware of the mental uh, uh, conditions that are present when you're doing it. Because we can become bright, quite proud that we're so mindful. We, we never slam the door and we walk very delicately and gently down the corridor and we bow very gracefully three times. But then that one doesn't. And we can, we can get very kind of uppity about and very uh, critical of people that, that don't do. And so to be aware uh, also of that, of, our, of how whatever we grasp and, and identify with, you know, then the grasping is the problem, not the thing itself. So if we become snobbish and, and uh, holier than thou and critical of others, then we're grasping something. You know, where if we if we really you know when you when you look at the state of mind when you're looking down on somebody and you're thinking uh, you know in a negative way about how stupid somebody is, if you really look at that mental state, it's a, it's suffering to be caught in this mind that that looks down on somebody else. Not to mention a feeling that. Uh, somebody's looking down on you. Somebody starts treating you as an inferior and then you, you can feel really hurt and offended by that. But also it hurts to feel better than somebody else. To take a position that I'm somehow superior to, to, other, to others. And this is a, this is a, uh, uh, this is to be, to be noticed. I mean, don't believe me, but but it, when I say things like this, but it's for your encourage you to to what? What does if you if you if you tend towards being uh, proud and and conceited and and arrogant and think and look down on others, then try try to get some perspective on that feeling and is it and ask yourself: Is this happiness? Is this sukha, or is this suffering? Or is this dukkha? And to me, when, whenever I have feelings like that, I, it's it's not not beautiful state of mind. To to think of yourself as better, purer oh, than somebody else. Then the other to think that you're inferior is also suffering, and that we're just not as good as so and so. That's obvious suffering. Then in the democratic societies, we all have this idea that we're all just as good as everyone else. We're all the same. Everybody's equal. There's nobody high or low. We're all just as good, and that's an ideal. You know, that's a, that's a, a democratic ideal of we're all equal. 
But we don't really feel that way most of the time. <laughs> That's up here in the head, isn't it? We usually feel inferior or superior. <laughs> and we might think, we, you know, we, we'd like to feel we're all equal, but in, in actual, uh, as life, as, as we experience it, you know, living with each other or encountering each other or working with each other, then these various levels of, of snobbery and, and uh, attitudes of, of uh, feeling inferior or not as good. In, in the Sangha, for example, you get, uh, it's e- easy to take somebody who, who, like, who chants well, and then somebody who can't chant very well will feel, I can't be a monk because I can't chant very well. <laughs> To feel that because you can't chant, or your voice isn't very good, or you can't remember the the words, that somehow that you're inferior, you're not as good a monk as the one that can do all these things. So I mean, it's, these are these aren't the real, you know. One doesn't become a monk in order to chant. This isn't the kind of big thing of the monastic life to be able to chant in Pali language, uh, and we can recognize it some. Some can do it quite well, and others not so well. But that's not the point, is it? It's to to awaken to the way it is. So even our inabilities, uh, the fact that we are inferior in various ways to others, is is to be seen in terms of dhamma. I mean, it does. It, it's, enlightenment doesn't depend on being superior or being the best. That's not that's not the issue to be the best monk or the best nun or to to be able to do everything, you know, to high standard and and uh, know it all is not is not the uh, uh, one of the factors of enlightenment. In fact, one of the problems oftentimes with the holy life is uh, is the holier than thou feeling. Because you, you, you know, you're living a very kind of disciplined life, celibacy, and you, you're, uh, and you, so you can feel, I'm better than someone who isn't. I'm pure. And then you, then you, uh, and then you look at that state of thinking, I'm somehow superior to, as a celibate, to someone who isn't. And that that mental state is that happiness or suffering. To feel that that I'm purer than somebody else. To me, it's suffering. That's, you know, the, that's not the point of celibacy, to, to give you some, some identity as being pure. And, uh, or, you know, like we, we have all these disciplinary rules and restraint and we, we, we have a kind of refined way of living. So we can get, you know, one can, if you grasp these and uh, you become somebody who thinks, well, I'm, you know, I live a much finer life than other people, and I keep the rules better than the other monks, uh, or my discipline is much superior to his, or, uh, and so that we, we can become uh, as kind of supercilious about our life in when we 
when we grasp it and, and, and say bring it up to maybe high standard of refinement. But the, the refinement or the high standard is not the problem, it's the grasping. Again, I reiterate this, this grasping is the problem, always. You can always trace every bit of suffering to some form of grasping. And this is very, this is where the Buddha's teaching is so, so accurate and flawless in, in actual experience. Because you'd have people saying things like, um, pointing to, like, like, like people say, monks, they're a waste of time. All that kind of, uh, and all those ceremonies, that's, that's, the Buddha didn't teach those ceremonies. Uh, that's a, that's just a waste of time. And I'm going to do the real practice, the pure Dhamma teachings. And you get people who, you know, won't have any Buddha rupas, won't have anything. Buddha didn't. The Buddha didn't. He didn't. There were no Buddha rupas when Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) So they get rid of those. And then, uh, and all this chanting and shaven heads and robes and rules and... the Buddha said to to be mindful. Mindfulness is the way. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. You don't need all this stuff. They've got it all wrong here. And that is attachment to opinion, isn't it? You become you people again get, become quite quite arrogant about it. You know, they, the Buddha didn't teach bowing and chanting. That and then, then when you look at that state of mind, it's it's suffering to be caught in this this idea that you know what the Buddha taught and and that if it doesn't if what you see doesn't particularly align with that, then you you just feel this is uh, stupid. Then the opposite extreme is only we, the monks, that keep strict discipline and practice in the Theravada school, the forest tradition of Thailand. Only our way, we, we keep the rules like this, and we practice, and, and it has to be done like this, or there's no way that, that these, other, these other things are just futile attempts. <laughs> <laughs> so then that attachment to another view, isn't it? <coughs> that you have to perform the ceremonies, keep the rules, do all this a certain way, and then you get enlightened. So the, the, if you know, and yet there's, in each of these positions, there's, you know, there, you can say there's a certain amount of truth in them. The Buddha said mindfulness is the path to the death. But, uh, so these are what we call true but not right, right but not true. And the, the, the thing that the Buddha pointed to was this, what the, the sequence of Vedana, Dana, Ubadana, Pawa, or in this, this, with the feeling, with the sensitive state, then there's this desires arise, and the grasping of desire, and then the becoming process. And so, so the, this, this grasping is, the, is where we can really zero in on, on the cause of suffering the causes of all, all forms of suffering. 
you have in in uh, this uh, in say an interfaith or where in where we're living say in a multi-racial multicultural society like here in Britain now we've got this is a culture this is a society that has many religions living side by side not like Britain of a hundred years ago where everybody was Christian or the percentage of non-Christians was so minimal that it was no problem but now you have you have people who have, have no religion you have people that uh, just say well I guess I'm C of E and then you've got uh, the Roman Catholics have come back quite strongly where before uh, Roman Catholicism was was not was not even allowed for quite a while and then uh, and now you have large population of Hindus and Muslims Buddhists Jehovah's Witnesses Mormons all these American religions and Hare Krishnas all these different things are coming in and, and so this uh, and we form opinions about them we grasp the oftentimes views that the, each religion has about the other like in Theravada for example if you if you if you've practiced and mainly developed your your practice around Theravada teaching then it's easy to have uh, kind of biased views towards Mahayana Buddhism. So you hear the kind of prejudice, they're the, the party line. And this is just what what happens of grasping any 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 convention. And your own group, your the way you do it, you tend to to see that if somebody does it differently that it either is wrong or it's not as good. So the, the important thing not to figure out whether yours is the best and uh, and the others are trying you know convince yourself that the way we do it is right and they're not so good but to see that whole process of grasping because like in in the Theravada tradition I mean it is what it is I'm, I'm not trying to tell you it's the best if I ever said this is the best or that uh, that we're better than the Mahayana or that or I mean because we there are these kind of views we're pure that's what that's the usual one Mahayana these came later and that that added a lot of things that Buddha didn't really teach the Theravada keeps the pure teaching the original teaching that's the way we are and they're they're uh, they've they've added a lot of stuff that was never taught by the Buddha at all <laughs> um, but we we try to be tolerant about it. <laughs> so then, this is this is uh, this this kind of arrogance comes up in in religion. I was brought up in the states, in the in the Episcopal Church, which is the Anglican Communion in America, and then and it was a very high church, Anglo-Catholic church, 
which uh, was the most snobbish. I was brought up in this in this very snobbish uh, church where where the people and and we had there was only one high church in Seattle. And they were so high; they were higher than the Roman Catholics. And and they they just we used to call like Protestants. We referred to them in, in contemptuous ways. We used to call them the prots. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we were and I asked my mother one. I said, you know, when we die, what is the you know if we we all go to heaven. You know, does uh, do Anglo-Catholics have a special place? <laughs> <laughs> so I got the impression that that Anglo-Catholics would have the kind of like front row center, and <laughs> the props would be off in the gallery somewhere. <laughs> this kind of idea of of uh, you know this very because it was it had its own beauty, like high church, high church Anglicanism. That is quite has a, these beautiful ceremonies, and it has a lot to offer. But it's the grasping of it, isn't it? That is, that that makes it, uh, say, an obstruction. The self, the thing itself, might be very good, but it's this blind grasping that we take something maybe very good and just hold on to it, and we don't see. We, we, we and if you just hold on, it's like seeing a sign pointing. You know the the road sign to London, and just staying there, thinking I'm going to reach London. Because <laughs> you know, it says London right on the sign. You say, I'm in London now. But actually, you're just holding on to a sign, a, a directional pointer. And so, th- this, is a, like, this is what religious conventions are to me. They're like pointers. What are they pointing to? Christianity, for example, what is it? Is it pointing to itself as a, you know, or to some, to to some convention, a Christian convention, or is Theravada Buddhism? Are we just, you know, uh, forming a kind of club around being Theravadan Buddhists, and and we just kind of reaffirm our our purity and our goodness and our and our rightness. Or is is this is this a a tool for mindfulness and for seeing that whole uh, tendency to grasp? Because that grasping creates the self. You know, like we're we're the purest, we're the best. Is is suffering to gra- to to hold that view? To me, is is a form of suffering, and you can feel it very much when when somebody challenges it. When somebody says Mahayana is purer than Theravada, and you find yourself getting angry about it, <laughs> or wondering maybe it is, maybe maybe I should become Mahayana because because uh, they're maybe they're pure, maybe that's what's wrong. Why I'm so because I've you know I haven't got the best. That's why I'm not enlightened yet, because I've got to get into the, the best vehicle to get enlightened, and I'm not in it. But in note that that uh, in that the, the in the reflection on the way things are, we're seeing that that the uh, 
the best and the worst to the extremes. We're not aiming for the best in the conditioned realm. That's not the goal to for the best, but to see things as they are. So, so recognize that this that uh, when we when we start thinking, then we get caught in this dualism of best and worst, and right and wrong, good and bad. When we grasp those the conditions, then then we are uh, kind of stuck with a condition, even though it's the best. It's not take. It's not. We're not. It's not needing. It. We're not going. We're not transcending it. We're getting stuck with with a kind of conceit that we're the best because we've got the best condition. So sometimes it, it, the fact that that we do learn from from life, even though you may not have the best conditions for meditation in your daily life, or you know you might not have ideal situations or or you know everything conducive and and sympathetic people around you and and all that to to help you along the thing that will really prevent you from getting anywhere is believing grasping the idea that you've got to have the best in order to meditate you've got to have everything like here you've got to have you know everything a uh, lot like got to have silence, you've got to have uh, noble silence, you've got to have uh, uh, a lot of time to yourself, space, you've got to have this, you've got to have that in order to really meditate. When you, you grasp those ideas, then the, the problem, the suffering you're creating is around the grasping. That's much more suffering than the, than the conditions themselves that might not be the best or all that conducive towards a, a uh, meditation. So this is where the banya or the wisdom faculty develops. And you, you, you take your life and you, you learn how to live it, how to use it, even, even if you're in a situation that's, that, that is really difficult, troublesome in every way. Um, you know, even if, you know, if one can find a better situation and have the opportunity to leave it or, or change it, and that's fine, but sometimes we can't. We have to just carry on with, with the certain things as best we can. So, this is where wisdom helps us to, to um, how do, how can I use this this particular thing to develop mindfulness with, and how does it affect me? How am I? You know how. Do, the people you're living with, how do they really affect your mind, you notice? Or your own body, how does that affect your mind? Like going to the body, you're becoming aware of that, that the, the, the state of your health, the body, the posture is affecting consciousness. So then we, we become aware of how people do affect our minds, how the way they walk or, or the way they look at us. You feel it. Somebody looks at you uh, in a certain way, and you 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 know you can feel it. They smile, and and that you feel. Oh. And if they don't, 
You think, they don't like me. <laughs> well, we, I remember one morning, Chitters, a couple of weeks ago, I was down there and, and uh, I'd been meditating early in the morning. Somebody had built this nice little kind of hut down in one of the fields for me, for my birthday. And so, it's kind of shelter. It's like a gnome shelter, quite nice. And so, I was sitting in this shelter in the morning and uh, meditating, I was feeling very peaceful. Sound of silence was ringing away. And then the bell came, you know, it's time to go and have the have the uh, morning meeting, the gruel and the tea. I walk up in the field, walk into the room where they have this, sit down. I'm feeling so peaceful, I don't bother to smile or say hello or talk to anyone. I just sit there. And then I become aware that everybody's getting really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) And they think there's something wrong with me. Because usually they are used to me being kind of bullying, you know, hello, and (laughs) 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 I mean, you don't do that, and they think, what's wrong with Arjun Sumedho? So it's noticing how things affect you, like like it was interesting to like we used to have these retreats, the women would be sitting on this side, the men on this side. It's interesting when, when you've got all the women on one side and all the men on the other, because like men, men tend to have a different way of relating. Men come, you know, they, they're like this, and the, and the male features can look quite fierce and, and quite uh, frightening when they're just sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> And and women usually they try to they look at you and they kind of smile and they and they're prettier so so <laughs> so you find yourself you find yourself talking on this side all the time <laughs> it's because you're the, just the attractiveness of that just the you know as you're watching how things affect your consciousness. Uh, how you know what what pulls you what what makes you want to look this side and why you don't want to look on that side you know and you and you you can take it personally like saying you know making it a personal problem but that's not the point it's to see how things are you know to contemplate that uh, this state of attraction and repulsion or what like a smile is usually an attractive thing so we usually, you know, if you want to, to make somebody feel at ease and feel welcome and all that, then you smile at them. If you, if you know, when you go to somebody's house and they, say, you feel maybe they don't want me in. Maybe they, you know, as soon as they smile, they, oh, I don't see me, welcome, and then you feel you can come in. And so, and, and if they, so that these are. So we, you know, we, we respond or we, we uh, react 
to these simple things. Of what, what is attractive? What pulls you toward? What makes you feel good, feel welcome, feel relaxed? And what makes you feel unwanted or rejected? And just to note uh, the, that we're living in this realm where we've, we feel all this. There's nothing wrong with it, but we're, we're, oh, we're, we're investigating it, studying it. So we, we aren't just operating on the, and just by reacting to it. Otherwise, if we just operate on the atta- attraction repulsion principles without mindfulness and wisdom, then we'd, we're just reacting to things. It's just a helpless victim of circumstances. Somebody praises you, you, you're up in the cloud. Somebody criticizes you, down in the dumps. So you can, you can, you know, you can, you're just a helpless victim of whether somebody's going to praise you or criticize you. Somebody smiles at you or frowns at you. He smiles at you, frowns at you, you go down. <laughs> you're just a helpless victim of circumstances. I mean, it's natural enough, but then the, the one is caught in just these, these reactions and, and the suffering that comes from just being a kind of helpless victim in life that is frightened because you don't understand what's happening or how things are, so you, you, you get very defensive and protective and, and uh, frightened of all possibilities that might hurt you. So we develop all kinds of defensive ways of reacting to life, to, to kind of not be hurt by it, or uh, because of what? Because of this grasping. So that's the, that's the, the, the suffering, the dukkha, is from the grasping. Grasping views of ourself, grasping whatever. The, not to, uh, the good things, the bad things, the problem is always with the grasping. So contemplate that is this uh, what they call ubadana in in Pali. Ubadana is grasping or clinging, attaching. To hold a view that you shouldn't be attached to anything is is another attachment. So it's not it's not having a view that you shouldn't be attached, but really studying attachment. So you can, you know, you attach to things and really, you know, if, you, if you're going to attach, attach and do it very mindfully so you can see what you're doing. And, and when you, when, and not to think, that then the, then the uh, attachment to the view that you shouldn't be attached is then you get this idea, oh, I'm, a, I'm so attached and I shouldn't be. You, you, you make yourself into somebody who's attached. Or you can convince yourself, I'm not attached to anything. Some people think, you know, you go through those phases where you think, well, I'm, I'm not attached. And I'm free from all... I'm not like the rest of you completely detached now. And then uh, and if you 
you know, you can you can hold to a view that you are somebody who is not attached, but that's also an attachment. So the thing is not to have a view about it, but to study it, to know it. And then to know non-attachment. So what is that, you know, in terms of your experience of life, this is this is what we mean by the reflective reflexive mind, or contemplation. So it's not subscribing to a view that everyone believes in and then interprets life from, but it's, it's uh, taking that, like that choiceless awareness or this, this uh, mindful, mindfully reflecting on the way things are. We we begin to see, we, we see for ourselves the causes of, of dukkha, which is the three kinds of attachment to the three kinds of desire. Desire for sense pleasures, desire for becoming, desire for getting rid of things. And through that kind of investigation, Watching, then you you, uh, you 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 have insight. Insight knowledge is is profound knowledge. Not it's not just superficial. Not having figured it out with your with your with your brain, it's it's a real it's it's profound knowledge. Under it's it's real understanding of life. So in in Pali we call it jnana dasana or insight. Vipassana, the word vipassana is insight meditation. It's looking, it's uh, it's using this reflective capacity, this intuitive awareness. In this, as a human being, we have this is our this is this is what the Buddha was pointing to, and he's talking about mindfulness. 